And one of the things that he said to me at that time, which really struck me, and I've also repeated many times since then to others, is he said, the best thing that you can do for the world is to do what you're really great at. Mm. And that was a complete life changer for me. Mm -hmm. And that was a really great example of change your perspective and you change the world. That changed my world completely. What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Breakline Arena. We are so grateful that you are here. The Breakline Arena is a space that welcomes changemakers, hustlers, and leaders in the tech industry to share their journeys and passions and insights. We are hosted by Breakline Education, which serves to help top performers from underselected backgrounds land new and exciting roles in the tech industry. If you're a person of color or a veteran or a woman, there's info in the show notes about how to join our community. Now let's dive into the arena for today's special guest. Welcome, everyone. This is Bethany Coates, CEO of Breakline. Absolutely thrilled to be here today with Tammy Nam. Tammy is COO of Pixar. Tammy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. Delighted to have you. And first, Tammy, as we were getting ready for this conversation, you mentioned to me that you've done lots of interviews, but you've actually never gone back and watched the recordings or listened to the audio. And you expressed some reluctance about being interviewed and sharing a little bit more. As a fellow introvert, I'd love for you to to talk about a little bit about why, you know, what's behind that hesitation or, or the reluctance to be interviewed. Yeah, you know, I have never watched a video or an audio recording that I've ever done. And I think it's partly because as my teenage daughter would say, it's, it's very cringy listening to yourself, <laughs> or listening or watching to yourself. That's number one. But also, I think it's just my nature to observe. Mm-hmm. That's why I am a really good COO yeah. and why I actually started my career as a journalist. That's also an observer. Yes. Role. I'm, I don't like being an active participant in a lot of ways. Yes. So other people can have the spotlight. I'm okay being not so in the limelight. That's a really interesting perspective. So you're, you're COO of Pixar. This is one of the most exciting companies in the tech sector today, has raised a lot of money, reached unicorn status, growing really fast. And you said being a good observer is part of what makes you a great COO. Will you share a little bit more about that perspective? You know, a couple of years ago, I gave a talk at the Slush Conference in Finland, mm-hmm. and they asked me to give a presentation on the role of the COO of a startup. At that time in particular, I think that there was just a lot of attention on this role. And one of the things that I said, ultimately, at the end of the day, one aspect of a personality or a skill set or something that makes this role more successful is Mm. if you have less of an ego. And ego Mm. comes in lots of different forms, but one of those is to be a really great observer observer Mm. of other things and taking yourself out of the situation. Because if you can observe without ego or relatively Mm. less ego, then you see things for what they really are, rather than projecting or anticipating or, you know, adding too much color into the situation. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Really interesting. And Tammy, before we go too far, I'd love for you to just share a little bit more about you. I've shared your title and a personality trait of introversion, but would you tell us, bring us into your life a little bit more, tell us a little bit more about your path. I think I I have a very unusual path for where I am today. I grew up the child of immigrants. Uh, so I moved to the U.S., I mean, from Korea. I moved to the U.S. with my family, a couple of siblings, my parents, when I was about five years old. And they were immigrants. They were trying to make a new life for themselves and, you know, had a series of jobs, labor. And so when I was growing up, I didn't have a lot of guidance that would be typical of, I mean, when I compare even myself and how I have kind of helped to guide my own children who are now 19 and 20, it's just so drastically different than what my experience was at the time. So I didn't know a lot of things going into life. So I had to bootstrap myself, I guess, and figure things out along the way. And unfortunately, at that time, there was no internet, there was no Wikipedia, there was, you know, no Google, anything like that. So you had the library, and you had other people, and you had imagination and things like that. So I was very driven at an early age to, I think, observe, like we talked about before, but also tell stories and to be creative. So the path that I ultimately wound up taking in college was journalism. So I went to Northwestern University, studied journalism and economics, and I wanted to be a writer. So I graduated from journalism and was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And quickly, during the course of those four years, did realize that there was no future in journalism at that time because my specialty was in newspaper And even back then, there were hiring freezes, et cetera. It was very clear that the future of media would be going somewhere else. So I quickly did a pivot after I graduated and got into tech. I moved back to California and discovered the tech industry. And that was in the mid-1990s. It was booming, a lot of hardware, networking, et cetera. And I got into tech through PR and marketing. So I started out in a PR marketing firm. And I grew my career in marketing through that path. And I quickly realized that one of my subset specialties was operations. It was very operational in nature, but combining the operations, the kind of marketing knowledge, and I think the just higher EQ. So just evolved eventually into these roles of CMO and COO and CEO. This is fascinating. Part of what's fascinating to me is we've probably interviewed, I don't know, 75 CEOs and COOs on the Breakline Arena. And I would say 80% of them are either immigrants or first-gen American citizens. And it's such a prevalent pattern that it just makes me so excited and hopeful for our country. You know, as a net importer of talent, we're so lucky that people like your parents chose to build new lives here. And I was thinking about, I I loved your characterization that you bootstrapped yourself, you know, because it's such a like active form of building yourself and building into the best version of yourself. And I was thinking about the way that you said your parents couldn't give you the guidance that, you know, that people from perhaps more financially secure households at that time would have the context to give, but they gave you other types of guidance. 
like I'm wondering like the hustle factor that you're talking about that that willingness to lean in and bootstrap yourself I was just wondering if that was from the the example that your parents set in taking this huge risk coming to this country building completely new lives that's an incredibly entrepreneurial pursuit for them to have chosen yeah I mean that's absolutely true definitely that's a lot of the bootstrapping ethos I think Mm-hmm. In addition to that, it was also a super emphasis on the importance of education, mm-hmm. uh, which sounds very cliche for Asian parents, but totally true. So very important on grades and education, or at least that being the foundation for giving you a choice and also the jumping off point into more professional careers. So the importance of education and Having this idea instilled in you from a very early age that you can do anything. So we're kind of, you know, we as parents, immigrant parents may be limited in large part through language, but Mm. you can do anything you want. And Mm -hmm. so that was ingrained into my head. And if that wasn't there, I think that's probably the most important inception that sort Mm. of happened at an early age. Where do you think your parents got that mindset? you know, that you could do anything? You know, honestly, I don't know. I mean, maybe it was this idea of America and what America Mm. stands for. Mm -hmm. Because when they were growing up, it was post the Korean War and Mm. the Korean economy was really, you know, struggling. It just was not the powerhouse that it is today. And so they really struggled themselves, both Mm -hmm. from a family perspective, financially and otherwise. But I do think that there was always this America is a land of opportunity. And Mm. so there was that going on. But what's interesting, I think, is that I make the analogy to the tech industry. And Mm -hmm. I really felt that in the mid-1990s coming back to the Bay Area and with Mm. tech. Tech is so fascinating in that there was such a boom. It still is a boom. Obviously, it's evolved since then. It's matured as an industry quite a bit over the last 25 years. But there was that sense also of opportunity and newness and anyone can achieve anything. So that was one of the things that I really loved about it at the time. Mm. I love how you drew that comparison between your professional and personal lives. And the other thing that I was thinking about as you shared more of your background, you talked about being a journalism major and being really interested in storytelling and then starting out your professional career in PR and marketing and then pivoting into operations as you realize that that was a natural strength of yours. One of our core tenets at Breakline is excellence is transferable because we've seen so many times, you know, the, the veteran who has distinguished military service and jumps into tech and becomes an amazing salesperson, you know, or the incredible athlete who jumps into tech and becomes an amazing, you know, operational leader We've just seen that path, but all that wiring, the drive, the grit, you take all of that with you from one scenario to another. And your path reminds me of that too, where you started in this observational and storytelling sort of stance and moved into operations. And now you're a CEO of, again, one of the most exciting companies in the world. Do you see that in yourself, like that ability to scaffold, you know, based on, you know, move from one area of excellence to another? I I see it in myself and I also see it in a lot of other people who mm. I've mentored over the years, over the last 25 or so years. 
I totally agree that excellence is transferable. I completely agree. And the other thing that you have going in this day and age in tech also that you didn't have back then was consumer tech is so prevalent that everyone is an expert as a consumer. So there's that kind of language of tech that is pervasive today that it wasn't, you know, even 10, 15 years ago, even. Mm-hmm. So jumping from one industry to another, as long as you have the core skill set and as, as long as you have those core sort of foundational aspects, I think that's what's most important. Mm-hmm. And Tammy, even when you knew you had the core skill set, did you ever in your career have moments of imposter syndrome? And, and if so, how did you work with those? How did you move past them? How did you grow out of them? Oh, gosh. The short answer is yes. I think every single person does, no matter who you are, especially mm-hmm. when you're moving from one role to another and even evolving within the same sort of line, I guess. Mm-hmm. If you don't have imposter syndrome, you probably are not stretching yourself enough. Mm-hmm. And it happens every single time that you make a jump up, either you know to a whole new thing or to a more senior position in the same thing or a different industry or a different department or something like that. Everyone has imposter syndrome. What is maybe, I think it's only fairly recently that I have not had imposter syndrome, mm-hmm. mainly because age, age and just collective overall experience. So it's been mm-hmm. decades and I have done maybe not the exact same thing, but very similar things. And I've seen patterns, patterns of companies, patterns of people, patterns just over the course of different generations, even within the same company. So when you're at a startup, especially, there are different phases of startup from early phase to mid to late stage growth to public company. Every single phase is different. So even within that, there's, you know, people get imposter syndrome because I've never gone through this experience. But that's, I think, one of the beauties of tech industry is that it's not only fast evolving, but you have to evolve in order to survive because it's so competitive. Mm-hmm. So competitive. That reminds me, I interviewed Othman Laraki, who's the CEO of a company called Color, and he jumped from tech to healthcare and founded, he helped to found Color. And he said, people underestimate or underappreciate how quickly you can get to 90% proficiency in a new space. And he was kind of saying, if you zero in and focus in for three months, you're dangerous at that point. Like, you know enough, the industry is changing so quickly. And our ability to learn is so profound that you can catch up really quickly. And I thought that that was a really neat perspective for people to have as they consider building their careers. Just like you, you know, you could have said, ah, I've sunk, you know, the last four years of my academic career into journalism, shouldn't I just go with that kind of sunk cost and build the career, even if it's tough? And instead, you said, I'm actually going to make a hard pivot, (laughs) you know, and move into a completely different sector. Have you seen that, like, the growth mindset and just being willing to be a beginner, knowing that if you lean in, you won't be in that space for too long? Yeah, I mean, I I also believe, though, that people tend to make distinctions distinctions Mm. between lots of different categories of things like tech or non-tech 
you know, and I think those distinctions are increasingly artificial, meaning mm-hmm. the difference between consumer and business, the difference between personal and professional. I mean, those distinctions are just evolving and becoming yes. more artificial. And I think it's the same also with the, you know, people who are considering career moves. And so if you think about it that way, it, this idea actually also goes to one of the core things that I keep coming back to when I'm mentoring people. And at the end of the day, it's like, if you forget anything else, one thing to remember that I think has really served me well over the years is if you change your perspective, the entire world changes. Mm. If that makes sense, right? Yes. You can look at something in one way and look at it in a completely different perspective and everything about whatever that situation that you think is going on is completely different. Mm-hmm. I'm writing that down and it's reminding me, I can't remember the name of the philosopher, but the point was something like, no matter where you find yourself, believe deeply that you have chosen those circumstances. Mm-hmm. And this comment around perspective really reminds me of that. Is there a time in your career where you use that wisdom or that insight to your advantage? You know, actually, I did. When I was making the shift between marketing to uh, more professional management, Mm -hmm. And at the time, one of my mentors in my life is my husband, actually. He's extremely wise, one of the smartest people I've ever met, and maybe the smartest person. He's also 10 years older than I am, so he has some experience above me. And when I was going through this shift in my life, at the time I was thinking, why am I doing this? Because I initially identified journalism in part because I had this idea that I wanted to change the world and I wanted to do investigative journalism. I wanted to make things you know, better for the world. And then I got into marketing and mm. I thought, what am I doing? I'm basically just marketing things. And it just felt like I just should be doing something more, quote, important in my mm. life. And one of the things that he said to me at that time, which really struck me, and I've also repeated many times since then to others is he said, the best thing that you can do for the world is to do what you're really great at. Mm. And that was a complete life changer for me. Mm -hmm. And that was a really great example of change your perspective and you change the world that changed my world completely. So rather than thinking about it from the perspective of why am I doing this? And it doesn't really matter. I realized that I was making a huge difference in mm. pursuing what I was really good at and also mm-hmm. positively impacting other people around me through my job. Mm-hmm. Your husband's comment reminds me of the investor Ben Horowitz. He wrote the book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. And he said, there's this prevailing sort of cliched thought do what you're passionate about. And he also said, don't do what you love, do what you're good at. I totally agree. (laughs) That is so correct. And usually, almost like 99.99% of the time, if you do something that you're really great at, you will also love it. That's exactly Ben's point too. Yes. So you have mentioned mentorship three times in this conversation. And so I can tell that it's important to you. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts around mentorship, both as a mentee, you know, who 
you reach out to for support, for insight, for guidance as a sounding board or thought partnership, and then who you choose to spend your time on, you know, like, what is it that stands out to you that you think like, this would be a really productive relationship. And this is a person who I could perhaps have a meaningful impact on. How do you make both of those choices? That's a great question. So I'll take your first part of the question first. Mm -hmm. The way that I approach as a mentee, Mm -hmm. and I do think it is important to identify mentors in your life one way or another. They Mm -hmm. can come in many, many different forms. Mm -hmm. The way that I do it. So I mentioned my husband. He's always been a lifelong mentor for me. Mm -hmm. But the way that I've approached that is throughout my career, I've identified traits mostly that I want to emulate in, in certain people. And I ask them, how do you approach this, et cetera? So I've done that throughout my entire career. So for one example, earlier on in my career, I had this boss who was so positive all the time. He was just walking around like, you know, on clouds and always had a smile on his face. And I said, Bob, how can you kind of maintain this attitude? Why are you always so happy? And he said, my motto in life is don't let the assholes get you down. So I've collected these pearls of wisdom and kind of to live by throughout my career. And so I do that a lot is Mm. I've identify a trait that I want to aspire to and I observe and Mm. I also ask questions. Mm -hmm. So don't let the assholes get you down. Were there a couple of other traits that you were really intentional about seeking out? I mean, there's so many different examples, I think, of micro examples of mm. just things that have contributed to kind of my collection of life wisdoms mm-hmm. that I've tried to pass down to other people. And so that goes to the second part of the question, mostly, yeah. which is, how do I approach the mentees? Mm. So people who I spend more time on. I think what's important here is to be authentic. So if you don't have a animalistic instinct to gravitate towards certain people, it's mm-hmm. probably not going to work, right? You're, mm-hmm. you're not going to give proper guidance or be authentic and it's, it's going to really show up. So there are people who have approached me in the past who I felt like it wasn't quite of a fit. I don't know you that well or something like that. And I've declined actually mm-hmm. giving certain advice because time is so limited. But mm-hmm. there are people who at every single company at every level who I've identified as who are the people who have great potential, but who mm-hmm. may be blocked by something or other. Yes. And I think that it just there are a lot of people who go throughout their career not having proper managers, not having mm-hmm. proper management guidance, mm-hmm. or seeing really good examples of proper managers or leaders. And so I just think it's such a shame for people who have such broad talent not to have that kind of support in their career. Mm -hmm. So that's what I try to look for is people who have potential Mm -hmm. and who given a little bit more guidance that they could go really far. And Tammy, I think one of the, an off-putting question for me is, will you mentor me? Because it sounds like such a commitment you know, and especially if I don't know the person well, it's hard for me to be able to sign up for that. Like you, I'm a mom, you know, and like busy career. And so I'm curious when you have opted to mentor, 
is it someone that you have gone out and pinpointed or is it folks who have sought you out and requested your support? And in either case, or especially if they requested your support, how did they ask for it in a way that felt like it was doable for you to say yes? I think both. So Mm -hmm. I have sought people out and they Mm -hmm. have sought me out. The easiest scenario is when it's natural. So you're at the same company, you have some interactions, there's mutual interest. So that's probably the easiest scenario. There are some outside of that, you know, in an advisory relationship, or I'm also an advisor to some companies and investor in some companies. So that also happens. But you know, when it's natural, it's the best. Mm -hmm. And I think when people are seeking me out, what's most successful, that was your question. The most successful situation is when it is very obvious that Mm -hmm. they're open to learning and feedback, and Mm -hmm. also that they are transformed by it, or impacted Mm -hmm. by it one way or another. And you can tell. Mm -hmm. So mm-hmm. if you're having a conversation, you know, give a suggestion or maybe an alternative way of thinking about something, you can see the light bulb go on in their head. And mm-hmm. usually what happens is they might approach me afterward and say, I was really helped by our conversation. Would you mind spending a little bit more time with me on occasion yes. so mm-hmm. that I can ask you more questions or something along those lines? It's the bite-sized ask. We always coach our breakliners, make an ask that's easy for someone to say yes to. Mm-hmm. You know, could I catch you for 10 minutes? We all have 10 minutes, even as, as busy as we are, if it's an authentic relationship. And you've said that a couple of times, Tammy, and it reminded me one of my mentors always says, the best time to make a friend is when you don't need one. And his point is, you know, invest first, add value first, provide the favors first, do your best to build a meaningful relationship. And then at some point, if you need help, you can call on that relationship. Mm -hmm. But it's pretty tough to just, you know, go out there without meaningful connections first. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that applies to networking. Yes. So there are a lot of people who go to networking events or try to network as a goal unto itself. Mm -hmm. And I am not a big believer in that. And I Mm -hmm. think it rarely, rarely works for very similar reasons. I want to pivot the conversation a little bit and make sure that we have time to talk about Pixar as well. And, you know, here you are, you joined four years ago. World is your oyster at this point. You know, you a hundred different companies, I'm sure would have been recruiting you and would have wanted you to join as COO. What was the opportunity that you saw at that time? And how has the team, how has the company evolved since then? Has the journey unfolded the way that you expected it to? I joined Pixar after about a year sabbatical. And it was about a year sabbatical after my previous company that was acquired by Rakuten. And then I became CEO of that company and had decided to take on the CEO job. I gave them 18 months and two and a half years later, but I really, really needed a break at that time. But toward the end of the sabbatical, I thought, what I actually considered a couple of different paths. One was to start my own company. Another was to look at other companies, and it would be based on the industry, the opportunity, and multiple factors. 
I ultimately decided that Pixar would be a good choice for a couple of reasons. One is that it would have given me, and it did give me the opportunity to be directly responsible for the operation of a company at a larger scale. So I had experience at all different sizes of startup, but also post-acquisition and companies that were many, many thousands of or tens of thousands of people, but directly being responsible for operating a company, I didn't have experience beyond 200. So Pixar at the time was already 300. Today, it's 1,200. So that's one. And also the CEO, Hovana Savoyan, CEO founder, really wanted to focus on product, product and engineering. And he really wanted to offload the business of the business to someone else. So all of that stuff. So Pixar has had really great foundational things. So it was a really great product market fit, had all of the kind of the core assets in place. But what the company needed was all the other stuff that it could help with, which was hiring, scaling, organizing, process, rigor, you know, all that stuff. So I thought it was a really good match. So that's why I decided. And also, I had two teenage kids at the time. Today, they're 19 and 20. But back then, they were four years younger. And it was very obvious at the time that they were visual communicators. It was a generation of visual communicators. And that's exactly what Pixar is all about. It's about visual creation. And I thought, you know, there's a reason why Pixar is already number one in this category mm. and why the category has so much potential. And since then, it's, it's definitely proven to be correct. We are in this creator economy entering this metaverse phase that's also about visual creation in so many ways. So, yeah, it turned out to be really great. And Pixar has really evolved over that period of time. And as far as I think the second part of your question is, what has been my role or how has the company evolved since then? What's so interesting and fascinating about tech companies is that there's never, ever a dull moment. Things are evolving every single second, it feels like. It's never, ever boring. So my role in the company, the space itself, the company has been constantly evolving. There is this like constant evolution, but at the same time, there's also these major phases of evolution too. So typically you go from like, you know, people in one room that you can yell across the room and have a conversation to a uh, hundred people, your first hundred people, and then hundreds of people, and then a thousand people and so on. So at every single stage, it's, it's different. At the same time, you have to consider market conditions, the competitive environment, and culture and all this stuff. So everything was bringing together what I do best, which is puzzles. So if you think about what is the picture of the puzzle that you're trying to build, right? And then how do you get to that picture when you have thousands of pieces, right? Right now, it feels like and looks like thousands of pieces. So that's what I'm really good at. So bringing all those pieces together. So it's been very gratifying. Mm. So I want to dive in because you gave us a, a bunch of information there. And I wanted to just ask, will you talk to us more about Pixar, the product, the solution, the service? There's a Forbes article on the company that oversimplifies it and says Photoshop for the TikTok and Instagram generation. But I'd love to make sure that our listeners understand what an opportunity this company has and continues to have in front of it. 
Yeah. So as I mentioned before, ultimately, I think it's about visual creation, but Mm -hmm. in, so there's, there's the platform aspect of it. So it's a visual Mm -hmm. creation platform, essentially. And that can come in lots of different forms, device factors, use cases, et cetera. So Pixar's roots is in photo video editing, Mm -hmm. consumer photo video editing. And since then, it's evolved to include other platforms like mobile, et cetera, and evolving into B2B business. So there's mm-hmm. a Teams product on the web. There is a API business that we recently launched. So if you think about the future of visual communication and visual creation and all the different forms, Pixar wants to be there. And so if you think about like, we talked earlier about this creator generation and those distinctions of consumer and prosumer usage or business usage is artificial, right? These lines that we're creating. And it's totally, it plays out when you look at the use cases of PixArt because people are using it for their own personal social media editing. Mm -hmm. They're using it for their side hustle. So I'm an influencer on TikTok or Instagram and I use it to edit my photos and make these, you know, creations. I might be using it as a marketer if I'm a marketer inside a business. If I'm a corporation, I might want to use Pixar's API to offer a certain aspect of editing for my users. So it kind of runs the entire gamut. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Tammy, for filling us in. And then the other piece that I wanted to double click on was your relationship with Havanis, the CEO, because relationships have been a theme throughout this conversation. We've heard about your parents, your husband, your kids, your mentors. The relationship between a COO and a CEO is a pretty tight one. I mean, that's a lot of like shoulder to shoulder problem solving and leadership. How did you know that Hovanis was going to be the right partner to you in a, in a professional sense? The truth is you don't know. Unless you know that person in advance, it's, it's mm. really hard to tell. The good thing in this relationship, I guess, it started off with a stronger connection in that we were introduced by a investor and advisor in the company. So, mm-hmm. and they both happen to be ethnically Armenian. So huh. I now somehow have the specialty in Armenian founded companies as my second in a row. So the introduction was helpful on that. Yeah. Front. But every single relationship, you have to navigate anew. Mm. But you're absolutely right that the CEO-COO relationship is critically important. It does take time. Mm -hmm. And you do have to be clear as much as possible on the demarcation because Mm. there could potentially be conflict there. And actually, it's interesting you asked this question because that was part of my slush presentation was specifically or a subset of it was specifically navigating the challenges of and potential pitfalls of the CEO-COO relationship. What are some of the potential pitfalls? I think one is that I mentioned was the demarcation of responsibility. So mm-hmm. ideally, you have a complementary skill set. And even if not completely complementary, at least being clear upfront and maybe even throughout what is going to be kind of my mandate versus you know what you're going to be focusing on, for example, then you're mitigating any potential like conflict that might come up because you just already had that conversation. The second is a stylistic conflict. And I think the 
So as far as stylistic conflict is concerned, this is also kind of inevitable in a lot, a lot of ways. People are, every everyone is very different. And then when the dynamic of two different people can also be very different. So it's understanding and I think respecting the different styles that exist and embracing mm. it even. For some people, it can be maddening because CEO founders are a very different breed. And I've worked with many in my career and I can say they're a very different breed, but there's, there's a reason why they're CEO founders. It's because they think differently from other people. But in order to be able to have a good working relationship over a long period of time, it is something to be aware of that it may come up, but mm -hmm. something to hopefully embrace. Mm -hmm. And then I think the third might be a functional conflict. So it might be this will probably require a lot more communication and frequent communication. So at the beginning, for example, when I started at Pixar, Hovannis actually went on a vacation <laughs> and he, he went on a vacation and he has multiple houses around the world and he was staying at his house in Spain and he was doing work remotely from all over the world, even, you know, back then before it was a big, massive thing. But what happened was in the beginning is that so I was thrown into the, okay, here, run the company, right? And so I was thrown into it and I said, okay, I'll do it. And so I just went about doing it, right? And in my mind, I know what needs to be done and I'm just going to do it. But he was wound up asking me, like, what's going on with this? What's going on with this? Because I realized I wasn't communicating with him frequently enough. Mm -hmm. So it just turned out, it just, you know, you learn how to navigate the very particulars of each relationship and mm -hmm. what that person needs. Mm -hmm. That point around communication, I don't know how many times I have to learn this in my career. Like there is no such thing as over communicating when it comes to something important. You might say it once, you might email it. You got to just like continue telling the story. Did you have that instinct from your experience in journalism? Because it really is partially about storytelling and building a narrative and sticking with that narrative or evolving it as you get more data. But as you think about leading the company, teaming up with Havanas, teaming up with your other colleagues, the element of storytelling in, in what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. In this case, this actually goes to one of the other life lessons, mm -hmm. I guess, that I tell people all the time. And the way that I position it is in the absence of communication, people always assume the worst. Yes. So if you are not communicating and not communicating frequently enough, mm -hmm. then it's just human nature that people will always go to the worst case scenario. And, mm -hmm. and that's another thing that people do is they imagine things that don't exist. Yes. So if you don't want that to happen, then you're incentivized to over communicate. This is a lesson that I've learned painfully over the years, but something that, again, like I, I totally agree with you, that keeps coming up again and again. But if you remember that along with the, you know, change your perspective and the world changes, mm. that's probably the two of the biggest things that's, that's constantly come up for me. Mm -hmm. Tammy, in our last couple of minutes, I'm just struck by how much you have achieved. It's amazing. You know, you've built companies and led companies, you're CEO of one of the most exciting companies in the world now. And I'm thinking about your parents telling you, you can be anything that you want to be. 
like, do you feel like you are the personification of their wildest dreams? Because it's amazing to think about your path and to see where you are today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. I think, you know, what's interesting and what is the difference between my parents and me versus me and my children Mm. is that we may be sending the same message, you can do anything. But the difference is that with my parents, they had no follow up, right? Mm. They couldn't tell me (laughs) how they couldn't help me with anything with the connections or anything like that. I have so much follow up, probably Mm. my kids are like, ah, leave me alone. But Mm. yeah, there's a lot of follow up there. So in that respect, I look back and think, how did that even happen? Because (laughs) I mean, not only was there no guidance, you know, from childhood, but so many things can go wrong. Mm. And when you don't have that structure, when you don't have that foundation, so many Mm -hmm. things can go wrong. But I was lucky that a few very important things went right. And that's all you need. It only takes one person. It only takes, you know, one kind of move or decision that you make to set Mm -hmm. you on a right path. And hopefully along the way, you meet very supportive, helpful people who can help also be your guides. That was a very humble answer. (laughs) And I do just want to also tie it back to the point that you've shared. If you change your perspective, the entire world changes. You know, and just thinking about you as a young woman having the perspective, I can invent this, you know, I could build my way into the life that I want for myself. And that's what you did. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for sharing more of your story today. This has been such a treat. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode of the Breakline Arena. We're hoping that you're walking away feeling a little moved, a little inspired. And if you really had a good time, feel free to head on over, rate, subscribe, leave us a review. It does help us spread the good word, keeps these good vibes rolling. Yes, we would love to hear from you. Thanks again, and we will see you next time.